0: Let's grab our seats, so good to see all of you today. All right. So yes, uh, um, since all of you, of course, were here this morning at 6 a.m., you'll know this will be the, the second message of the day. Uh, we are actually entering into our last week through Psalm 119. Um, anyone that wants to come and, and join, uh, that will continue, uh, through this week and ends a week from Monday, um, as we work our way eight verses a day through the longest chapter of the Bible, 176 verses covers, um, all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and its emphasis and focus is on the power of God's Word. Uh, and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And it's an amazing opportunity for us to kind of come together and develop the habit of seeking the face of Jesus before we seek any other face. Now, I used to do these studies constantly when Dorypho began, and let me just tell you that um, my my physical fatigue has been a a very sad reminder that I'm, I'm officially hitting midlife, it's happening. Naps have become a crucial part of my day. Uh, But, uh, but it's been a blessing to do it. As far as Christmas morning goes, you know, with, uh, with Christmas uh, day falling on the 20, uh, on the 25th, I mean, excuse me, Christmas day falling on a Sunday. um, Everyone knows it falls on the 25th. Uh, (laughs) Clearly I've been up since 4.30 for two weeks straight. Uh, With it falling on a Sunday, you know, the that's everyone's family gatherings, but there's also a lot of people, and we recognize for <laughs> you parents who uh, have littles, that's probably not a feasible service time, but we also know there's a lot of people that, that don't have family. And I just thought it would be a cool way to um, bring in Christmas day. My family will still be sleeping. Uh, so I thought, let's just do it. Let's do a cool kind of like at Easter, like an like a morning, like a sunrise service, um, and just celebrate the incarnation together. And I will make you coffee and I will be there to greet you, and you're invited uh, to come. It's gonna be a beautiful time. So that'll be on Christmas Day. Uh, and, and I am really looking forward to that. And, and we'll, we'll worship, we'll sing songs together, we'll open the word together, and we'll fellowship for a bit. And then I'm gonna go home and open presents with my family. So uh, with that said, we're gonna continue um, in our series called Kingdom of Grace. And we're coming to the close of chapter five today. We'll take a break um, and we'll pick it up again. We'll uh, enter into chapter six in January. Uh, Probably the next few weeks we're gonna be doing, we're gonna do a couple messages around the incarnation. And then we always do kind of a a reset sort of new year um, message to uh, kind of ground ourselves in the vision of Door of Hope uh, and remind ourselves of what the pillars are about and who we are as a church and where we believe God is leading us in this season. But today we're gonna consider what I like to refer to as the mark of the Christian. The singular note that marks the Christian's life. We're gonna be looking at Matthew chapter five verses 43 through 48. Um, But I wanna just begin by sharing with you two passages that I think give us the mark on the front end so that we can unpack it as we move through the text. The first one comes from John chapter 13, verse 34, Uh, and this is where Jesus is in the upper room, and he has just finished washing his disciples' feet, and he says to them this, a new command I give you, some call this the 11th commandment, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice, the mark of the Christian is not how much you know, how disciplined you are in your Bible reading, how much you pray, how, how fully you serve uh, the various social causes of, of your day. The mark of the Christian is love. And love is the motivation for all those other things, or should be the motivation for all those other things. We often talk about the things that make a Christian a Christian. What is Christian maturity? And I would argue that Christian maturity is the ability or the ever increasing ability to move into ever deeper intimacy with Jesus, which is what inspires us toward those various activities that play into our sanctification. And So what I'm saying is that it is new affections that bring forth transformation that we are what we love. We worship what we love. We are what we love. And the love of God, this perfect love of God uh, that Jesus says will be the mark of His disciples is not a love that we can produce in ourselves, agape love can also be called grace, and grace is love without contingency. And this is what we're gonna be looking at today in this final passage that's about loving our enemies. Uh, that is not something that comes natural to the human condition in a fallen world. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Look at Romans 13 verses 9 and 10. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. These are themes that we've already considered in here in Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, great themes in the Sermon on the Mount. It says you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be and what Paul is doing is giving us a summary of Jesus's whole point whatever command there may be are summed up in this one command (laughs) love your neighbor as yourself love does no harm to a neighbor therefore love is what the fulfillment of the law what did Jesus say in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets I did, not come to destroy or I did not come to destroy, I came to fulfill it. And how is it fulfilled? It is perfect love. It is the one-way love of God. It is God come down to us. The gospel is down to earth, friends. It's down to earth. The gospel is not about the regulation of the human will. The gospel is about new affections that leads to the transformation of the whole person and brings transformation, God's transformative work to the world. Western Christianity, uh, Jacques Ellul said, has long taught that we are changed by what we believe and what we choose. That is by the human will responding to God. And what he argues is that attachment, um, excuse me, that moving forward is that we would understand this. It is the renewal of the mind Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind corresponds to love God, not know God with your mind, but love God and the counterpart, the evidence of the love that God pours out in our hearts that allows us to love Him can never be disconnected with the call to enter into His mission. It's not do theology and become a pastor. To love God with one's mind means putting one's thinking in the service of God's action in the world. And what is his action in the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the great confession that we are to bring into the world and it is to be evidenced by, played out practically in how we not only love one another but how we love the very people that might function and work against us. And that is no easy task. I was in a restaurant this morning and the server that took my order um, was wearing a T-shirt that said, smash racism, smash racism. And I was like, I'm like, yeah. And then it went on to say some other things that was really more smash racist. And what I think we need to understand is that the world's answer to wrong behavior is usually been to respond with like behavior to snuff out the wrong behavior. But unfortunately, the same will always beget the same. (laughs) The same results. If you look historically at the attempts to overthrow great tyranny, you think about great dictatorships where the people were under unbelievable oppression. There's a revolution and an uprising. It's a violent uprising. We will take down the violence of this oppressive regime by violence and what does it generally give birth to? An even more violent regime. Because violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. We don't fight hatred with hatred. That's not the call of the Christian. The call of the Christian is we do what is counterintuitive and we love those who persecute us. We love those who hate us. We are called to be conduits of God's grace. That is the, that is a love without contingency. It is unfair. It goes out to people not because they deserve it, but because we knew we didn't deserve it and we have received it. And it would be wrong for us to keep that powerful truth to ourselves. It is new affections that transforms the human heart this is the mark of the christian it is love now i'm going to show you um, a cartoon strip now i don't want you to judge me because some would be like this is a little harsh and i'm not one that generally uses but i thought this was pretty stinking funny and i think gives us a summary of one of the great problems that we have as christians in fulfilling this be kind to everyone jesus says wait even gary yeah gary's the worst Look, we've been through this. Yes, be kind to Gary as well. Ha, suck it, losers. Not now, Gary. <laughs> if you're offended by that, I'm sorry. You should laugh more. That's really funny. That is really funny. Because we all know Gary, don't we? We do. I think I'm, I'm Gary in my household. Uh, and... I told my wife, I'm like, I know that the children are the joy of your life, and I am the job, um, but nonetheless, God has beautifully brought us together, um, and uh, it, that I, I can often hear, think of Darcy saying, not now, Josh, not now. Um, <laughs> this is the reality, is that we, we always have our reasons, uh, if we live in a culture that, that, that propagates victimization, we're all victims, and, and, and to create a just society that is driven by equity, what is needed uh, is to bring down those who oppress us. All we are producing is the very thing that we are working against. And this is why it was so frustrating for me to see the amount of vitriol that was, that was put out there by Christians and it's, and it's often cloaked in this idea of like what makes me rage is the evil of this particular group and their ideologies and the attack that it brings upon God's, um, uh, God's, God's plan for creation and the, the very fighting against the natural order of, of, of God's God's ordained ways, and so all of a sudden there is a justification for a hatred of the very people that were called to bring the love of Jesus to, and it doesn't work. and This is why I am frustrating, I, I, I know I am frustratingly ambiguous when it comes to uh, where my political positions or natural leanings lie, because for the Christian, our loyalty is not to any political party to any country it is to jesus christ and his kingdom and wherever god brings us or wherever he leads us to whatever place we live in we are called to be good citizens not because of our fidelity to that country but because of our fidelity to the king we are to do everything we can to live peaceably amongst the people we live amongst this is was the writers of the new testament telling the christians that they were to do all they could to remain peaceful in in an oppressive Roman Empire that ultimately brought about the death of thousands and thousands of Christians under the rule of Nero and many many leaders to follow. Uh, The fact is, is that what you did not see was a revolution of violence, an upheaval against the Roman Empire. It was a revolution of love that made Christianity an unstoppable force and under an oppressive regime, which is why Christianity continues to explode in places like China. Just explodes. Uh, The the numbers of conversions in China far surpass the numbers of conversions in America where we freely have the Bible and can gather together. And it shows us that God is not that interested in in the various ideas that human beings have around what we think is the perfect government system. What he's interested in is, do my people reflect my heart? Which is, I love lost, evil people. Jesus, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask Him, saying, how much more will your Father in heaven give to evil people who have said yes to my forgiveness? How much more will He give them? Because Jesus came to save us. And there are only two categories of people in the world, evil people that said yes to Jesus and evil people that say no. That's it. And so, I'm sorry, I think think my beard is getting unruly. Isn't that terrifying? That's my beard. What a horrible sound. I'm just going to shave it off. My wife will be so bummed. Actually, I I don't think love would be the outcome of that that decision. I remember I cut, just cutting my hair off in 2011 when I had long hair and coming home and my daughter uh, coming out uh, in, into the hallway because she heard me come in and, and, and she looked at me and she goes, you used to be handsome and then went back to bed. <laughs> and this is why we have to function in love, we can't respond any other way. Well, let's consider the text before us, and we're going to begin with what I call the expansion of love. I think that we, we often misinterpret that Jesus is somehow like speaking something that is, that is in conflict with God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament. No, Jesus is the final revelation, the full revelation of what God has always been like, because he is God. Uh, and he says here in Matthew 5, verse 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and on the, and on the unrighteous. We are called to hate what is evil and to cling what is good. In the Old Testament, God's covenant people, Israel, were to protect themselves from the evil influences of, of the pagan idolatry that raged around them. He was, he was... He had chose a people out of the world, but we forget that the reason he chose them was that they would be a revelation of what the true God is like to the rest of the world. He even said, you will be a nation of priests, but what they became is a nation with priests. And that priesthood turned in upon itself and it became an actual misinterpretation of, of the very law of God by which the children of Israel believed that they were the only people that God really liked. And I think that Christians can do this too. Somehow it's like, it's only those on the inside, on the inner ring that, that feel like they're okay with God and they're actually okay with the fact that maybe the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But you know, that doesn't seem like a bad deal. Uh, you know, this is what my dad said. He goes, uh, he, when he said he believed in hell and I asked him why and he said, because I know so many people that should go there in which I asked him, what about you, Dad? And his response, classic Al White, Joshua, I'm a good person, I'm not gonna talk about this. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad you're confident in your own performance. I, I don't know if I would be, <laughs> as he continued to drink his, his giant jug of vodka um, and swear at the television all day, unless it was Bonanza or Little House on the Prairie, and then he seemed like a calm man the expansion of love here is jesus is telling us and this is one of the things is is i have heard great um uh, in powerful argumentation for a doctrine that i think is from the pit of hell which is the belief that god hates sinners there's only one passage in the entire bible that that makes that same that, he, that does not god hate the wicked and it's actually in the psalms and we forget that the Psalms are poetry and that there is lots of proclamations in the Psalms about the wicked and the destruction of the wicked and even a desire to see the babies of the wicked's heads smashed against the rocks and that which very rarely do we use those lines in worship songs unless we were going to do like Christian death metal. Um, then it's all revelation, it's all revelation in metal. Um, Christian metal bands love revelation. Uh, but, but here's the problem with, with that is you take a singular verse out of context and you create an entire systematic grid that basically says, "God only loves the chosen, only loves the elect, and he hates everybody else." But that flies in the face of what God himself has declared of himself. Again and again, hundreds of times throughout the scriptures the very passage in which God declares to Moses in Exodus 20, what does he say? He says, I will reveal myself. He says, show me your glory. And what is, what is the revelation that God gives? That he is abounding in steadfast love and he is slow to anger. Again and again, that is re- we are reminded of that. And the other aspect is that all of the commands that God demands of us directly correspond to God's own character and nature is revealed. God says, do not commit adultery because God himself is faithful. I think that we need to understand that if Jesus says, love your enemy, he is not making a demand of us that is not true of himself. And we cannot proclaim the love of God to a lost world and at the same time hold some sort of false grid that gives us, that excuses us for being cruel or hateful toward others. It actually flies in the face of what Christianity is all about. The expansion of love here uh, is directly connects to a New Testament theme that is that is uh, continually expanded upon, which is the idea of love as the fulfillment of the law. In fact, in Romans thirteen eight, one of my favorite passages, one of the things that we're, that is declared of love that will help us understand how it is that we can hate our enemy is we're to owe no one anything except to love one another for he who loves another has fulfilled the law if you would think of love as the debt it's the only debt for us that is never paid in full it's never paid in full Jesus on the cross paid in full for the brokenness and rebellion of humanity that allows us to enter into intimacy with Him in a new and profound way because our faith in Him allows Him to be Himself in and through us by the presence of His Holy Spirit. It's the essence of why incarnational, understanding of the incarnation, why we celebrate Christmas is so important because it is God's entrance into the Creator becomes creature. He enters into His own creation And though he may not remove the difficulties of life and the pain and the suffering of existence, what he does is he enters into the midst of it so that we cannot say that he does not understand us. And the promise of Scripture is that as we function as conduits of love, just as Jesus came as a conduit of love, and this is not, let me just say very quickly, the modern world or liberal Christianity's vision of love is a very mushy love that is, it's the idea of no uh there is no um we don't hold any sort of corner on truth so love is love means that there is no um we, we pass no judgment so people will ask are you inclusive and i'm like yes i think the gospel is the exclusive claims of jesus i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me is what opens the world up to the exclusivity of the offer. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Uh, Jesus' invitation is for all people. Go into all of the world and make disciples, baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, uh, to obey all that I have taught you. And, the, and he sums up his teaching in John 13. What was it? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Our love for one another is, is a key understanding. We're never going to be able to love our enemies well if we can't even love each other in the pews well. How are we going to love those that disagree with us fundamentally on every issue in life if we can't even love those who claim to have the same belief system as us? And listen, it is true. The best people I've ever known have been Christians, and the worst people I've ever known have been Christians. And I, and I think the part of that is because there is a tendency within the Christian life to take the ethics of the kingdom and make that supreme rather than love of God and love of neighbor. And so now it becomes a place, our Christianity becomes a source of um, superiority over lost and foolish people. And we who know the truth and hold the corner on truth um, are justified because we're doing the right things, not the wrong things. But I would argue that if you have that sort of mentality, you have not spent much time at the foot of the cross because the light of Jesus cannot come into our lives without exposing us, not just once, but every day and showing us areas in our own lives that fundamentally need to be transformed again and again and again. I have found that the longer I walk with Jesus, uh, not only am I continually amazed at His it is unmoving love for me. I'm continually amazed at the ways I betray that love, often even without even knowing it. And then the Lord show, illuminates another area of my life that isn't surrendered. Another thing. And this is the gift of the gospel. I shared this morning in Psalm 119 that, that when love becomes the motivation for the Christian life, what we will understand is that the prodigal son as a story is not just for those that, you know, walked away from their faith. And then, you know, came to a place of, of absolute emptiness before re- returning to the heart of the Father who is ready to restore them. No, the Christian life is a daily prodigal returning to the heart of the Father. This is why the central thing that we are called to do, our obedience is not the little things we do right, like I read my Bible, I prayed, I, I, I served the poor, I gave of my belongings to, uh, to God's mission. No, our obedience is our total surrender to Him and all those other things are, is the way that that obedience, that submitted life works itself out. Just like sin is not the little things we do wrong, our sins, those, those rebellious things that we do um, are connected, are the outworkings of the sin nature, which is us being our own God us choosing for ourselves what is right and wrong. And that's why sin, uh, sin can become obscured for the Christian because we don't realize that often one of the greatest sources of sin in the church is pride. Either pride in experience or pride in knowledge, uh, but pride and, and sadly, it's the most tolerated sin in the church, especially among church leaders of influence. And I think that we can't afford To be like that the expansion of love here it was what jesus is driving home is that our love we're not just called he didn't say only love one another and by this the world will know you are my disciples he's like your love for the world will flow out of your commitment to me and your commitment to my people that we can't reach a hostile world without one another there are no lone ranger christians and the expansion of Love, Love and this vision is that the Christian life now is no longer driven by simply abstinence from wrongdoing. That may be a part of the Christian experience, um, but listen, what we really should be focused in on is not sinning less, but loving more, because loving more is the only means by which we will actually begin <laughs> to truly sin less. And we're never going to be sinless. The only place we're sinless is in Christ Jesus. He's the sinless one. and it's our participation in His life and our identification with Him that gives us that, that title. But the fact is is that it is the love of God and love of neighbor that actually moves us into an obedience that flows out of new affections. And that's the only kind of obedience that lasts. I, I, I hold deeply to that conviction so Jesus here is expanding our vision we don't we don't get to hate anybody I don't care how much if the entire world is gathered together against a single human being our responsibility is not to join in with the masses in fact I love what Tozer once said I and I am definitely as a contrarian I love this he said he says pay no attention uh to, to whatever is in vogue, whatever new, new ideas in vogue within the church. Pay no attention to it, for the masses are always wrong. And I think that's true. (laughs) I think, I think mob mentality, we are not immune to it. And I watched the church get sucked into it uh, in the, to the right or the left in the last, in the last four years. And I'm just like, have we not read our Bibles? Do we know? have we learned nothing how can we pick a side and how can there be an enemy there's one enemy and it's the devil and the other great enemy which might even be a worse enemy than the devil is yourself (laughs) I'm like be hardest on yourself and easiest on others should be the principle of the Christian life never think that whatever you see in someone else that you hate is is somehow not in you because it's probably there and often the reason we hate behavior in others is because secretly it's our great issue you ever you hear about that all the time a pastor that rails on sexual sin only to find out they're railing on it because they themselves are engaged in it in such a way that their conscience, the only way they can feel better about it is to speak out against it, but they themselves are doing it. It's the very nature of what creates the hypocrisy um, in the world. And I think that that's what speaks to selective sanctification. Love is, love as a debt is a great protector um, from our lives falling into those trappings. We don't have enemies. We have a enemy and it is the kingdom of darkness. Uh, But when it comes to human beings, these are the people that are made in the image of God and we are called to be conduits of that love. And it doesn't matter what their ideologies are or how far they are from an understanding of who Jesus is. We are called, they are not going to be compelled to turn to our message through our vitriol toward them, toward our attacks upon them. Jesus gives us A powerful picture here for he moves on beyond the expansion of love and he gives us here its inclusion if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that I've heard horror stories of Christians that believe that the best way to be close to Jesus is through an ascetic life. And and what I mean by that, and you don't have to move out into the desert like the Desert Fathers. I don't know if I call them Desert Fathers as much as I call them um, uh, maybe misguided fathers who gave us some good stuff, but I think we got more weird theology from their isolation than we did from them being, living out life practically in community. Um, a practical mysticism should not drive us away from humanity. A practical mysticism is that which is my intimacy with Jesus and my willingness to follow Him is always going to lead me into the brokenness of the world, not away from it. And I think that here Jesus is very clear that we're not impressing anyone by our ability to love those who love us. It's way harder to love those who don't like you. And and listen. I'm not saying you're going to like everybody. C.S. Lewis made a great distinction between that. But I feel like we need to be careful because it can get into semantics because uh, really disliking someone um, and hating them is a pretty thin line. I don't know if we should be comfortable like creating these sort of splitting of hairs by which we can, you know, I'm like, they're like, well, I love you. In the name of Jesus, but actually, I cannot stand you. <laughs> and I really don't want to be, a, I don't like Gary. <laughs> and that's the, that comic strip. That just becomes like the, it's like, like, well, I love him. I just don't like him. L- listen, it's true that not everyone's going to be your best friend. And there are going to be temperaments that rub you wrong. But just remember, when you think of those people that you consider to be annoying or overbearing, it's very possible that you are that person because no overbearing and annoying person generally know that they are such. Um, And so I would just be careful to to come to the conclusion that like, ah, that, man, that person is annoying. I always, I love hearing, I love hearing. I see, I think the greatest gift the Holy Spirit's given me is I know that I am unbelievably annoying and unbelievably overbearing. I mean, I'll just take over a whole space of a room, just swallow it up. Uh, and, and I don't even mean to. And it generally comes out of good intentions. I'm so excited about whatever I'm excited about. It's like I, like my son turning to my wife, like if dad shows me one more tattoo he wants to do, I'm going to freak out. Um, I'm just excited. And I'd be more excited if he let me give him all of them. Um, <laughs> so I practice on my children. Is that good parenting? <laughs> Hattie's almost... An adult? (laughs) You're like, are you serious? I'm not going to answer that question. Listen, this is the thing is that we are not proving that we are His disciples uh, when we only love and care for those. The, The church should not be a place of cliques, it should be a place where broken people come together to find healing in Jesus together, and we help carry one another's burdens and we come alongside one another. I think a picture of the gospel and I see that in Door of Hope, you guys, and I just want to encourage you. It is a beautiful thing to see people that have come that that come off the streets, people that have come out of prison. We have we have old and young together. Our community groups reflect that that uh, that beautiful mixture, not just the mixture of sin that I talk about, but just the 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 coming together of all different types of people. Uh, and from different age groups and, and different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. And that's what the church should look like. As cool and exciting as it was to see Door of Hope in the early years be this explosive, this explosive growth of young, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds. You know, the goal was never to be a college ministry. Uh, the goal was to become a church. And I remember Gary Brashear said... You're not a church yet. You're just an exciting worship service. I think we're a church now. And I think as a church, we have to learn to grow in maturity together in this, in this thing is that we come, there's even a, a, incredible variety of even theological grids represented that sit under the umbrella of orthodoxy and i would even argue there are people that sit here in the midst there are some of you in this room that probably sit outside of orthodoxy as i would be comfortable defining it because door of hope is a place where we want people to come in and meet jesus and we trust that if we keep the cross central that jesus will begin to work out those areas um, that 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 create division And actually by the Holy Spirit, we are trusting the Spirit to bring conviction and transformation because there is a whole plethora, a spectrum of stages of faith represented in this room. There are always people in Door of Hope that have not even yet said yes to Jesus who are just exploring the gospel. There are people that are brand new to Jesus and know very little. There are people that have been Christians their whole lives and need to unlearn a bunch of bad stuff. Uh, There are people that are mature believers that are pouring into believers around them. But this is the beauty and the mess of what it means to be a family. You know, as uh, Mary Carr said, a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. That is a true statement and never is that so true as it is in the church. We must love those that do not love us. What are we doing more? What are we doing more? I I, I think that this is an incredible statement. Not only do we need to understand how expansive Jesus's vision of love is because he himself is the embodiment of love. God is love. And not only is the invitation of god's love for all people and he asks us to be a reflection of that inclusive offer come in and meet me and i'm not saying this is not about the removal of our orthodoxy we do not have to give up our orthodoxy to be loving people i have held tenaciously to the authority of scripture to what is 2,000 years of historical orthodoxy i have not moved (laughs) moved uh, outside of that umbrella ever uh, in my convictions around the authority of the word and the truth of what God has revealed himself to to be to us God's plan for for humanity for for marriage for family all of those areas I have hold, held to but we don't have to be jerks to hold on to that those convictions should lead us to an even greater conviction and commitment to love those that do not know the truth You know, it says Jesus was full of grace and truth. And people try to turn that into like a balancing act. It's like grace on one side and truth on the other. And if you have too much grace, um, you know, it becomes with not enough truth, it becomes mushy. And if you have too much truth and not enough grace, uh, it becomes, uh, it becomes too rigid. And uh, I don't think we should look at it that way. Truth, grace comes first in that order. And I believe in the divine ordering of words in Scripture. Jesus is full of grace. There is no understanding of truth if God hadn't first graciously moved toward us. Grace is what brings us into truth. It's not the other side of truth because often when people use that sort of dichotomy, it's full of grace and truth. All of a sudden, they use that as an excuse for browbeating people with truth. It's because I love you that I'm beating you down. (laughs) No, we bring them to the grace of God who is the truth, and the truth will set us free. But there is an order. No one wants to hear the truth if there is no relationship, if there is no love. And I think that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the sum total. And I think that, that we have to define our terms of what we mean by love. It's not, it's not a love that, that just leaves people in their brokenness and does not. It doesn't matter if we say we love people. It is a love that is defined by sacrifice—the sacrificing of my well-being for the good of another. That was the—that's the essence of what Ian's message last week, Jesus's words about about turning the other cheek. It's not a conversation around pacifism or not pacifism. It's a conversation around a Christian's responsibility to understand that self-preservation is not our goal. Everything else is just conjecture. We can, we can, we can think all day. What would I do if this scenario happened or that scenario? That's not what matters. What matters is, are we fundamentally moved by God's love for us? And is it moving us into a place where we are willing to risk our own lives to bring others into that love? Risk our reputations, risk, risk our belongings to bring others into that love. Do we have a radical vision of grace? How shall we love? Man, love is emotional, but it is also volitional. And it is a decision to surrender to love. To love someone means to consider him or her important. And I need you to know, if God's love means anything, it means this, he cares about you. Right where you're at, he cares about you. He's concerned for you. He loves you. He wants to bring healing to your life. He wants to set you free from the things that brings bondage. And we as Christians need to be the carriers of that healing work, that work that casts off the shackles of darkness and brings people into the light. As we enter into the Christmas season, many of you are watching Elf because that has definitely replaced the Christmas story as the movie of the generation. My kids don't even like the Christmas story. That's why nobody's interested in the new version. I never wanted to see that kid as a man. It's sort of ruined everything for me. Um, but I love Elf. And I love, one of the things that is so profound about that movie, it's actually a movie that's built on the concept of grace. Uh, because. The whole, the whole thing of Buddy is that he just, he loves people, he doesn't judge anyone. And he says the truth, he always speaks the truth, it's just that it gets him in trouble because he has no ill will, he has a childlike spirit. You know, what was one of the one rules that, that, his, that his, his father, the papa elf gave him when he went to New York City? When you see the candy stuck underneath the rails in the subway, don't eat that, it's not candy. And then he's picking the gum off of like from every rail and eating it. I just love the pure innocence. But my favorite scene that I think should be the ultimate revelation of how Christians should act is when he falls in love and he busts into his father's office. I'm in love and I don't care who knows. I don't care who knows. What I, what I have revealed to you in secret, speak from the rooftops. People, when they fall in love, will do crazy things. It may be our, our unwillingness to live radically on the edge for Jesus is because we we don't fully believe that he loves us and nothing will fundamentally stunt your growth like the false belief that God is disappointed in you he already knows you're a disappointment and he loves you still that's the gift that's the good news he's not he's not he's not keeping or he's not Santa Claus he's not keeping a, a list of who's been naughty and nice, because in, in, in the list of Jesus, everybody's naughty and he loves us still. That's grace. Santa's contingency, Jesus is grace. I should have saved that for Christmas Eve, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. Finally, the perfection of love. Matthew 5:48. this is the verse that led me to Jesus. It's kind of a funny verse, because it's also the verse that caused me to throw my Bible across the room. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that in the past, what drove me to my knees and accepted Jesus was the impossibility of this passage. It was the impossibility that brought forth an incredible frustration in me. It was like, is this a joke? How could jesus like this is clearly hyperbolic like he he can't mean what he says but does jesus is jesus uh i mean i think jesus has a sense of humor um and yes he does use hyperbolic statements to drive home a truth but this one is not this one isn't really wrapped in any sort of metaphor it's just put out there <laughs> very explicitly be perfect and most people that's kind of the motto and the pressure. Many Christians live under this unbelievable guilt and pressure, I'm gonna be perfect from now on. I, I, I made it, I blew it again, tomorrow I'm gonna to be perfect. I'm gonna get it right this time, perfect from now on. Where some deceive themselves and say, I'm born again, I am perfect and I don't sin. I've, I've actually met a Christian who argued that he did not sin any longer. Wesley believed in Christian perfectionism, the idea that one could actually go through a sanctification that would lead to perfection on this side of the world. Although I have read some pretty strong arguments that that's a misinterpretation of his writings. Uh, Who knows? But the fact is, is that uh, we can definitely trace um, a serious attempt to live out this passage literally uh, in through our Puritan heritage. It's funny that I think Puritans, uh, the Puritans, as much beauty as came out of uh, the, Purit- the much of the Puritan writings. One of the things the Puritans were notoriously known for was their their stoic sour faces. Their fear, their absolute fear of enjoying anything in the world, because of the because of this idea that I've got to. This is this is what led to a removal from the world rather than than a, than a wise understanding of how to maneuver in the world uh, without becoming a part of its false systems. No, the perfection here in its context, although it's true Jesus is putting forth an impossible possibility and I would argue that anyone who is in Christ is perfectly covered by His perfection. He is the embodiment of love. It is only He who can love through us in the way that God wants to love. This is why paul says i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me the life i once lived in the flesh i now live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me what a powerful passage that speaks to the perfection and that is true i think that is a proper interpretation of this text but i think actually in its context jesus is driving home something different that he is showing us that the perfection that we are called to, that the Father and the perfection that He is speaking of in the Father is love. It is the perfection of love itself. Listen to these, listen to these passages, it'll help us understand this principle. But above all these things, put on love, Colossians 3.14, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It's the final word. It's the law is perfectly fulfilled when we perfectly love. Now, do we perfectly love? No, but we are to put on love. Well, how do you put on love? Well, I think actually Paul spells it out in the letter to the Romans, which he also wrote. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its its lusts. Think about those. Christ is our clothing. He is our perfection. He is the the object of our love as well as the source of our ability to love others. This is how they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I love this because it challenges my tendency toward coming before God in my own strength, trying to perfect, as Paul says, you foolish Galatians, why are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? And what has God done in the spirit? Romans chapter five, verse five. And the spirit of God has been poured, the the spirit of God pours the love of God out in your hearts. It's a love of God that that has been poured out supernaturally by by the new birth that lets us know that we are on our worst day loved and it is not just the ability to know that we are loved, but it is the creative work of the Spirit to give us now the capacity to reveal that same love to the world, to actually be a carrier of that love, to see people with the eyes of Christ. There is no greater, uh, greater growth uh, or mark of maturity than the disciplining of our devotion to King Jesus, which is a daily surrender to Him. I shared today... The power of the covenant in marriage is that two people are called before God and one another to commit themselves to what Karl Barth calls repeating the yes of love. It's repeating the yes of love. Our covenant is not some sort of hasty oath, but it's a commitment that every day, that's why Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient are the troubles of the day. It's the daily demand upon our lives to repeat the yes of love. And we repeat the yes of love by surrendering to the one who is love. Present yourself then daily as a living sacrifice. And you know what it's like to not repeat the yes of love. Have you begun your day without much love and you allow the frustrations of yesterday or the worries of tomorrow, the the classic two crosses that we are continually crucified on, uh, that keeps us from the one who stands before us or hangs before us and cries out with hands open, not a clenched fist, but open hands, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The heart of the Father is available to us as we daily surrender to His yes of love. And we commit to be carriers of that same I, yes, I choose to love you in sickness and health. Yes, I choose to love you when you're grouchy. And we say, that to our, we say that to our spouses, but as covenant people and the bride of Christ, are we as a church making that same sort of covenantal daily promise to Jesus, which means that we will be about Jesus's business and his business is to, is to speak his yes of love over a world that often says no. And so I ask you, is this the mark of your life if you want to know the details of what that love looks like I'll close with this first Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others and it is not self-seeking it's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth it always protects always trusts, always hopes always perseveres love never fails an exercise that i heard a preacher alan redpath and i've heard many preachers give it since Replace your own name with that. In your own mind, read that. Josh is patient. Josh is kind. Josh doesn't envy. I don't boast. I'm not proud. I don't dishonor, and you find yourself you can't even stink and finish it. All of a sudden, 1 Corinthians 13 is not like this awesome, pretty text to be read at a wedding, because you're like, ooh, this seems more like an indictment than it does uh, helpful. But let's put the one whom we are called to put on His name there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Jesus did not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres Jesus never fails you can take that to the bank and when you believe that's what Jesus's love is like toward you that is when you will begin to believe that Jesus wants to love like that through you he is our perfection he is our covering there is no other and there is no other tangible evidence that you are a Christian without this amen let's pray Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. Lord, we need not ask the question, well, what about this kind of person? Or what about this kind of person? You give no, you leave that wrapped in absolute ambiguity because for you, our neighbor is anyone and everyone that is behind us, before us, next to us at any given moment of the day. And that means those that want to hurt us, as well as those who want to bless us. We are called to love people with your love, not because any of us deserve it, but because it is your nature to do so. Not only is it your nature to love us as sinners in our sin, but it is your nature to love other sinners through us in their sin. And just as your love is holy, which means that you're not content to leave us in a place of despair and brokenness, but to bring healing to our lives and to free us from the shackles of of the lies of this enemy and the lies of this world, so it is that you want to bring healing through our lives and free others from the shackles that bring harm to themselves and those around them. And Jesus... Not only is your love a love that comes to sinners in their sin, and not only is your love holy in that you do not tend to plan to leave us in the midst of it, your love is also creative. And that is that you can birth in us the ability to love. A love that is truly a foreign flower in the domestic soil of our hearts. And I pray that you would bring that, that flower to bloom within us, that we would be a people that truly reflect to the world the one who is the light of the world. Jesus, we are secondary lights. May your love not just simply shine brightly through us, but burn fiercely within us. Would you set this church aflame with your love? We pray these things in your name, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.